0: CHAPTER THIRTEEN, PART TWO, OF MARGARET SANGER, BY MARGARET SANGER. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. CHAPTER THIRTEEN, PART TWO, THE PEASANTS ARE KINGS. MANY OF MY HOLIDAYS WERE SPENT MORE HAPPILY THAN THIS. I NEVER TIRED OF THE WOODED MOUNTAINS WHICH SHELTERED BARCELONA most of them having some religious significance. Portet and I went up the funicular to the top of Tibidabo, the exceeding high place where the devil tempted Jesus, showing him in a moment of time the world spread out before him. Another glorious spring day, we twisted up the thirty miles of road to Montserrat, the mountain riven in two at the crucifixion. It was the quaintest sight to one coming from a land of subways and elevators to watch the donkeys laden with packs on their backs of vegetables, eggs, and butter, and to see their owners straggling beside, up and down the hills, masters of at least themselves, if not of their donkeys. The breeze blew more chill as we ascended the final slope to the huge monastery at the top. Afterwards, night fell, and the moon shone over the huge boulders of towering rocks, and the whispering wind swung from mass to mass and echoed back again whence it came. It was an evening of enchantment. On making other sorties into the country, I perceived an innate intelligence in the most ignorant peasant. The average one could not tell the names of the simplest plants or flowers, but one look from the eye, one tone of the voice, was comprehended in a flash. Even the gypsy children in the outskirts of Barcelona with their little dirty feet and tattered clothing, who danced weird dances and flattered strangers for pennies, had a natural brightness beyond belief. But this intelligence was not being directed, and one reason was inherent in the rebellious nature of the Catalan. He would have preferred no system of government at all, if that had been possible, for he was restless and tumultuous under restraint. When I saw children leading the blind about the streets day after day, I asked, don't they have to be in school? Isn't education made compulsory by the government? I was laughed at. If the government sent our children to school, we would know it was the wrong sort of school. Parents who could afford it, however, were willing enough to have them go to Ferrar's schools. Two-thirds of the Spanish people had not been able to read or write before his time. The teacher, who worked constantly all the year round, averaged about $16 a month. He is hungrier than a schoolmaster, was a household axiom. Since Ferrar's first school had opened fourteen years previously, some forty-six had begun to operate, and in addition, most towns of any size had at least one rationalist school, which was maintained by the workers and also used Farrar's texts. The groundwork was then being laid for the children of yesterday to become the leaders in today's fight. The pupils I saw at nearby Sabadella, at Granada, and at Seville were being taught the processes of life from the cell up, and their instructors were really trying to give them a scientific instead of a theological attitude. Because of the long mental and physical isolation imposed upon them by the church, which controlled all education, 5,000 towns and villages could be reached only by trails and tracks. The church had objected to having roads built because once transportation were made more accessible, women could more easily leave their homes in the country and go to the city where evil awaited them. Their morals were being safeguarded by cowpaths. Most of Spain was a gaunt, denuded, tragic country, with vast, desolate steppes and red, impoverished soil which gave the feeling it had been soaked in human blood for centuries. Certainly, the spilling of blood had been a matter of indifference in Spanish history. In a sense, the whole people were lawless, hostile to rulers. Every child knew the evils of El caciquismo. Some Spaniard has said, democracy, republicanism, or socialism have in reality little to do in our country, for we do not willingly accept either king, president, priest, or prophet. The worker in Catalonia had small faith in government, no matter what the brand, and kept straight to the one issue revolution through economic action, chiefly the general strike. He did not look upon the government as a vague, mysterious something for the deeds or blunders of which no one could be blamed. He demanded that those in authority should give accounting for the results of their authority. He never forgot a wrong, and usually those responsible paid the bill. I sometimes thought his attempts were carried out more from a spirit of revenge and individual hatred than as a social protest. At the head of the Rambla was a great square, the Plaza de la Constitucion, and there each day, from five to six, the populace took its airing. Thousands of feet had so worn the pavement that it needed replacement. One noon, the square was torn up. Nobody could walk there for twenty-four hours. The workmen were busy, ropes were placed across both ends of the promenade, and a huge sign was erected, no trespassing allowed by order of the government. Loiterers gathered to look at the proclamation. They began talking, their gestures growing more and more vehement, until finally... They pulled down the ropes and deliberately trod on the fresh concrete. They were not going to be forbidden by the government. The entire job had to be done over again, and I noticed the next night six mounted police were guarding all four sides, but nobody seemed to give either incident the slightest attention. Catalans were a race of individualists each a law unto himself. Their most marked characteristics were independence and personal dignity. Even Pepette, the waiter at my hotel, knew how to use his freedom. Sometimes he calmly left the dining room and went down the street for a shave while we were having our soup. He eventually returned for the following course, happy and clean, his absence unreproved. Whenever the conversation of the guests interested him, Pepet entered in quite as naturally as though he were sitting and being served instead of serving. In any other country, this would have been resented as insolence, but here every courtesy and respect was shown to him just as he showed it to others. "'If you said you were going to go by a certain tram to a certain place to be there at three in the afternoon,' he interrupted. "'Pardon me, senora. You do not need to be there until four-thirty, and it is much better to go by this other route.' "'Like the rest,' I said, "'Right, Papet. we shall take your advice.' with the expulsion of the Jews from Spain, vanished the driving force for commercial initiative, a quality fortunately or unfortunately greatly lacking in the country. Perez Galdos said, The capital defect of the Spaniards of your time is that you live exclusively the life of words, and the language is so beautiful that the delight in the sweet sound of it woos you to sleep. You speak too much. You lavish without stint a wealth of phrases to conceal the poverty of your actions. I did not believe this entirely true, but without doubt the Spanish had a maddening habit of procrastination. It was, si, si, señora, assuredly, certainly, all gracious, promising, and then nothing happening. To an American, this was especially aggravating, because he was always in a constant hurry. He expected to see and know the whole of Spain in a month. But the Spaniard was not to be rushed. When asked what time it was, he might reply, Perhaps four more hours of the sun. This defiance of clocks and the absence of strain and bustle pleased me personally. A story was told of a Spaniard going to seek his fortune in South America. After finding a position, to his satisfaction, he worked three hours and then suddenly asked for his pay. When his employer requested the cause of his abrupt leave-taking, he exclaimed angrily, Do you think I'm going to spend all my life working for you? Don Quixote truly represented the Spanish temperament. The strong enthusiasm which was shown for a project and the still stronger imagination, which not only saw the matter begun but also finished, was Spanish to the last degree. The Knight of La Mancha thought nothing of invading cities and fighting giants, but it ended in thinking about it. I consider all that already dumb. Spanish character— so paradoxical, so attractive, and often so difficult to understand, fascinated me. I could exhaust myself in adjectives—fickle, impetuous, rich-souled, ascetic, passionate, realistic, individualistic. Courtesy and ceremony were second nature to the Catalans of Barcelona— supposed to be the most dangerous and lawless city in Europe, where thousands of anarchists gathered and plotted and where bombs were thrown wrapped up in flowers. I remember how on the suburban trams, going high into the mountains, sellers of hot and cold omelets ran up and down the station platforms. Anybody who bought one, before eating it himself, offered it all to the passengers in the car, even though they might be carrying their own lunches. To accept, however, was a shocking breach of good form. The offerer protested that you must take it, and you had to think fast for a plausible excuse. My friends are waiting for me to dine with them, or I've just had something at the last station you must never, never, never accept. Havelock used to tell of a grave error he had once made when traveling in Spain. When he had admired a piece of jewelry, the lady to whom it belonged had removed it promptly and thrust it upon him, saying, I am honored to give it to you. She had been so insistent that, though thoroughly uncomfortable, he had taken it the very worst thing he could have done. Soon it disappeared from his effects, but what was his surprise on his next encounter with the lady to find her wearing it again with no sign of discomposure? Her servants had been so indignant that one of them had immediately stolen it back. Spanish men were not only courteous to women, but also to each other, having no hesitancy at showing their regard and affection. Even the beggars addressed each other in the most high-flown phrases, Your Highness or Your Grace. One might ask, Where is Your Excellency to sleep tonight? Under the bridge, my lord. They lacked that poverty-in-the-soul look that existed in the same class in other countries. Assuming the condition of one tattered and ragged specimen to be temporary, I questioned him. What do you do ordinarily? I saunter, I idle, I loaf. But what work do you do? He drew himself up with the utmost hauteur, and said proudly, I do not work, I am a beggar. Doing business with the Spaniards required a knowledge of finesse quite foreign to the average American. I, for example, saw a basket in a shop window which I felt I really must have. My escort and I went into the store. Since the proprietor did not speak English, all I could do was gaze longingly, take it in my hand, and ask my companion, How much do you suppose this is? He made no answer, but pointed to something else on the wall, and we left without learning the price. I thought he was a terribly stupid person. The next day, I passed the same place with Portet, and I begged, oh, do come in and ask how much that basket is. I want to buy it. He smiled at me indulgently. You know, in our country, we cannot just go into places and find out prices. "'This man is a craftsman. We will talk to him.' "'The proprietor and his wife shook hands with us "'and brought the best wine from the cellar. "'Then the former said, "'The Signora was here yesterday. Tell us about her.' "'She comes from North America,' answered Portet. "'Tell us about North America.' "'After forty minutes of this, "'during which I kept one eye on the wicker container,' but was unable to divert the conversation to it, we said hasta la vista and bowed our way out. A week later, Portet and I, following the lodestone of my particular basket, sought the shop once more. Relations had now been established, and we were entitled to ask about it. But we still could not demand outright how much does it cost. We must say, "'This basket must be worth so-and-so, "'making the figure higher than it should be.' "'Oh, no, 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 no,' the proprietor protested. "'It is not worth that. "'My humble hands fashioned it. "'It is hardly worth anything.' "'He endeavored to make me accept it for nothing. "'I had to refuse and once more try "'to make him take more than its value.' Never was there such a juggling before we finally arrived at the exact amount of pesetas. On my departure from the country, I had to break through a similar punctilio. I spent about seven weeks in Barcelona and was never presented with a hotel bill, none for lodging, for laundry, for meals, or for extras such as coffee. The day was coming when I must go back to France— and I did not want too much Spanish money with me, just enough to take me to the border. From there I had already purchased my tickets for England. Each time I mentioned cuenta to the proprietor, bowing and turning up his palms, he answered, Si, si, senora. Until finally, on my last morning, I marched resolutely up to the desk and said, I shall miss my train if I have to go to the American Express to get more money. You really must tell me how much I owe. He went upstairs. I waited. Finally, he descended, his hair standing on end. He threw the reckoning down on the table with a most vindictive look. I glanced at it. The total was very low. It could barely have covered the cost of the food. I have been humiliated!" he exclaimed dramatically. "Whatever is the matter?" I questioned. "We are living in the most hellish country on earth." "Why, what's happened?" "A lady comes all the way from North America. She visits us. She stays here. We like her. And I must present her with this sordid bill. Some day, when the fighting is over, I shall return again to Spain. End of chapter 13, part 2.